Before I get to my next guest, Sean McKeel, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Adele Golf. Is your driver adjustable? Of course it is. How about your irons? Didn't think so. Adele's new SMS irons give you adjustability in an iron to match your swing. These new irons come with three weights lined up across the back of the club. By moving the heavy weight to the heel, center, or toe location, you can match the club to your swing instead of vice versa. The result? Total control of the club face for more distance and accuracy. Your irons can't do this. Check them out online by going to adelgolf.com. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment? Maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is a guy who has been a very important part of this show since he first joined me all the way back in May of 2014, and that's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Sean is by far one of the most underrated players who may have ever played out on the PGA Tour. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for what he's achieved over the course of his playing career. Not only did he win the 2003 PGA Championship, he very nearly backed it up in 2006 when he finished second behind Tiger Woods at Medina, which people tend to forget. He would go on to defeat Tiger that year at the World Match Play Championship in the first round of that event, 4-3. and three. Sean has 20 top 10 finishes, 57 top 25s. He is one of only three players to ever record a double eagle in the U.S. Open, which he did back in 2010 at Pebble Beach. Like I say, he's one of my all-time favorites, and I'm very glad to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Sean, how are you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Good evening. How are you? I'm fantastic. Hey, John Mahaffey wanted me to pass along his hello to you, my previous guest. I heard that. I heard that. I was. I haven't seen John in a in a, in a good while. Uh, you know, I used to see you know some of the some of the guys at the at the Champions Dinner, and just over the years, and you know, um, a lot of them, you know, just don't seem to come anymore for whatever reason. But, um, you know, I would see John on occasion. But uh, anyway, yeah, it was good to listen to him for the last few minutes. He got really, uh, he was a great player, of course, and and uh, certainly offers a great perspective on, uh, you know, the game and the history of the game and, and his relationship with Ben Hogan. I mean, it's probably, um, you know, probably a friendship that all of us would have loved to have to have had um you know so uh but it is fun to be around people like that 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 have the stories um you know to share with everybody absolutely so sean i know you're fresh off of playing in this year's senior open championship at glen eagles over in scotland talk about being a part of that event yeah i mean it's always good i um I, it's it's, <laughs> it's so disappointing and yes thank you i did i got off a plane late last night uh, after you know a long trip, it's a long way to go to miss the cut by a shot. And so uh, I, uh, 
you know, I look forward to these, these events, uh, typically. Um, you know, not having played very much over the last couple of years, um, you know, making these trips, I think, is just getting a little, you know, getting a little bit harder. Um, but uh, I had played it going in those. I played the, the centenary course, which is where they had the Ryder Cup in 14. And this was, uh, you know, they got 54 holes there. And this was a, a, a lot. It was an inland length course. Um, you know, kind of pot bunkers, um, you know, scattered about. I and mean, they weren't as penal as uh, some that you might find in other places. But um, 12 or 13 blind shots off the tee, which is always interesting. So, um, you know, a bit of run. They had a bit of rain on Sunday, but, you know, it's always good. I think it's tough, tough at my age now to get over there. And, and, uh, I didn't get there till Monday. And I think I kind of paid the price for that. Um, you know, the jet lag thing is real. <laughs> you know, so you got to be on your game. I mean, these guys play very well, um, still, especially the, the, the locals over there. And Darren Clark got it done. So I enjoy, um, you know, I've always enjoyed major championship golf. I understand it's a senior major, but the feeling is the same. You know, you're playing um, with a lot of other players that have won major championships and had great careers, Hall of Fame careers. And, um, you know, as you know, I've, I've traveled my whole life. I've, I've played golf in, you know, outside of North America, 31, 32, 33 other countries in my career. Um and I've always enjoyed that. I really have. I, I enjoy playing other courses. Um, you know, I've, I've been in other countries, uh, you know, meeting, uh, you know, other people just kind of, just always something I've enjoyed doing. But as you get on these planes, you get older, it just gets a bit more difficult. But it really is kind of a fantastic place, um, you know, to be over in Scotland. Sean, you played in the Open when it was held at St. Andrews back in 2005. What was it like the first time you stood on the first tee at the home of golf and then put a peg in the ground? Well, I mean, the first time that I played um, there was in 2003 at the Dunhill Link Championship. And I was part of a group. Uh, most of the guys were from Jupiter, Florida. When um, I had won the PGA, you know, in, in August, this is probably the end of September, I got invited to to play and I said, look, I'll play as long as I can bring my dad as my partner. And that tournament is kind of modeled after the Pebble Beach event. So you play with an amateur. My amateur was, of course, was my father. Um, and you play Kings Barnes, Carnegie and St. Andrews. Three fantastic courses. So to be able to share kind of my first experience at the home of golf with my dad, um, you know, and the other guys as well, but it was just really cool for my dad to be there and, and look, you step on the tee, and, and I'm no golf historian. I mean, you know, uh, you know, kind of that's, like I said, the home of golf, and you know the history, you know uh, the numbers of players that have won. Um, you know, Jack Nicklaus went on to say that you don't really consider yourself a great Open champion unless you've won one at St. Andrews, and he always kind of felt that way. There's a big affinity for that particular town um, in the golf course. And it's interesting to kind of see how it holds up to the younger, to the younger players. Um, so that was what was so interesting about it a couple of weeks ago. But, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's fascinating really to play, you know, that, that style of golf. I'd never really played that style of golf before. 
and uh, you know running the balls up. Sometimes the fairways are faster than the green, so it takes a little bit of preparation, uh, probably a lot more preparation, a little bit more trust um, in the local caddies. So telling you aim over here, and it seems kind of you know counterintuitive to be aiming at a control tower that's a mile away on Lucas Air Force Base, and it would be the top of this gorse bush, but. You kind of go with it. And it's just, it's fun. It's fun golf. Um, uh, of course, until you get to the tournament. Most of the tournaments are fun until the actual, until Thursday shows up. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, going around the RNA clubhouse and seeing the history and, uh, the town is real, is, is makes, is as important really as the golf course because the, the, it's a public park, basically. You know, St. Andrews is a park. And after, I mean, not long, you watch it, not long after, after Cannon Smith won, there were people walking the dogs out on the 17th fairway. I mean, it's just, it's just a fantastic place. And, um, there's a sense of pride there about and not only professional golf, but just the history of the game and, um, you know, what it means to people around the world. And I think, uh, you know, it just, it's just kind of, it's just a really, really neat place to go and play. Uh, and the good thing is it's easy to walk. Now, I you know, just want to make sure you get it on, on good weather days. Um, you know, but, uh, it really is just truly a, a, a fantastic place to be. And it's, it's a bucket list item for anybody that, that's uh, looking for a place to play. Sean, you mentioned earlier about the other countries that you've traveled to and played in. And I want to take you back to 1998. You won the Singapore Open that year and that's a pretty big tournament i mean other winners you got several other major championships uh major champions that have won there adam scott angel cabrera sergio garcia a couple of years ago matt kuchar goes over there he gets a win in 2020 talk about going over there and then getting that win well you know i had played twice on the pj tour in both 1994 and 1997 so i was a couple of years out of college in my first year and it really took me a while um to kind of get my feet really under me. And, and um, I think just my personality, as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized, golly, I just was not not ready for it. I mean, my ball striking and things like that were pretty, you know, were, were great, but I just didn't handle some of the things, some of the crowds and, and all that stuff in the first couple of years. So after I lost my card in 97, uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who I had gotten to know. We had to share the same manager and then Charlie. And uh, Charlie was uh, Korean. I, I think he was born in L.A. or he could have been born in Korea, moved to L.A. early on in his life. And I was looking for a place to play. And I had missed out at school. I just, you know, not played well in 97. And of course, when you don't play well for a year, it's kind of hard to get back to the tour school. So they convinced me to go travel, or Richard, as my manager, convinced me to go travel and go to the European tour or the Asian tour school which was in Kuala Lumpur. I've never never been to uh, Kuala Lumpur. But anyway, I got on a plane and went over there. Uh, really restrictive tour at the time. I believe that there were only, in, in one particular event, probably a field of 144. Um, you could have, I think there were 35 non-Asians that could play. Now, that sounds a little bit funny. I get that. But it, that's kind of how it was. Um, 35 non-Asian players per event because it's the Asian tour. They really wanted to, to focus on on their players, and and uh, but they did allow it to be open. And so I, I finished high enough in the Q school that I 
maybe top five or so. And so I played. And, uh, you know, I ended up finishing third on the order of merit, which is a pretty good accomplishment considering I only played probably eight events out of a 15th uh, tournament schedule. Just, you know, I was trying to do other things back in the States too. So, um, that was, that was a tremendous accomplishment for me because I had lost so much confidence. And, and at the time, I felt like, well, maybe if I just get away from the state, just get away from, uh, you know, the tour life and, and those types of things that I can kind of get and just focus on my golf. And that's really what I think happened to me because when I came back in, uh, 1999 or, you know, the Q school of 98, I got my Nike tour card as it was called back then and then went on to win. In Greensboro and finished ninth on that money list and was on tour ever since pretty much. So, um, it was a fantastic experience. And, um, I think people miss out, you know, me along with a lot of other players sometimes kind of get labeled as a journeyman pro, um, which, you know, does have a negative connotation. I think when you first read about it, but as a player that's kind of experienced all of that, um, I look at it as just kind of a badge of honor. I mean, you know, as much as I've traveled, Americans and American players kind of get knocked for, you know, not leaving their home country and not going and visiting some of these places and, and taking their game and sharing it with other, with other players, other people. Um, and so it was just something I did. It was something, first of all, I needed to, um, if I wanted to play competitive golf and play for a significant amount of money. And, uh, and so I did that. And my experience was, was, uh, was fantastic. I mean, I played in, you know, China and, and, uh, Macau and, uh, Myanmar, Calcutta, India. I mean, I've been all over Bangkok and, you know, all these great places. Um, and that's where I met a lot of my friends. Uh, a lot of my European friends, like, and, and Indian friends, Jeeve Nicholson, um, you know, Darren Clark and I played a bunch together and there. VJ and I actually played in Macau one year. Um, so there were, there were a lot of players. Of course, it was co-sanctioned at the time of the European tour and, and, and several of the events. I was also maybe trying to use that to maybe get some leverage to play some European events, which I did. So, um, you know, we could talk all day really about my experience in Asia and kind of what it led to, um, you know, both, um, in my personal uh, experience and, and my professional experience, but I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I look back, it just was a fantastic part of my life. Um, you know, I was young and I wasn't married at the time and, uh, didn't have a lot of responsibilities other than to myself and to try to figure out a way to get, get back to the PJ tour. And, uh, so I used, definitely used that, um, as a way to kind of get my experience and, Sean, one more before I let you go. And obviously, live golf is the is all the rage right now. All the talk of uh, of golf, aside from all of the issues and the money and all of that sort of thing. When you look at what Greg Norman and that tour is doing, are there anything that that you're that you witnessed or you're reading about or seeing that you say, you know what, that's a pretty good idea. I sure think the, the PGA Tour ought to consider doing that. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I heard some of the comments John had, and I might take disagreement with some of the things he said. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's so different. I mean, 
you know, golf is such a different sport, a different type of sport. It's always been kind of an individual sport. Um, you know, and you, you have these team events, you know, every other year, you know, or at least the Ryder Cups every other year, and then you get the President's Cup. And maybe people are starved for team golf. I mean, clearly that's what they're trying to model themselves after. Now I'm reading today about, you know, the relegation, and both my kids are, are soccer players, so I know, you know, and I follow the Premier League a lot, so I know about relegation and things like that. Um, the team concept, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's so much different than, you know, what I'm used to as playing, uh, as being a PJ Tour member. Um, but you just look at the colors. Look at the colors of the teams. They're all bright colors. And to me, it seems like it's going to be geared towards gambling, is what it seems like to me, which I think puts the players in a very precarious position. Um, and it's another thing to kind of get off topic a little bit is I, I don't, I don't really agree with what the tour is doing with, um, some of the gambling sites that they have. Um, you know, and it just seems to me that maybe live golf is, is kind of geared a little bit more towards that. Um, you know, again, we could talk all day really about what I think and whether it even matters. It doesn't. Um, but it, to me, it just seems like maybe there's a little bit of an axe to grind. Um, Greg has an axe to grind that he, you know, the thing that happened with the World Golf Championships back in the mid nineties. Um, uh, and maybe look, anytime something is new, I think people are either immediately drawn to it or they're immediately, um, skeptical and they throw out a lot of comments. There's a lot of negativity, um, by people that have never played the PJ tour. And I kind of chuckle at a lot of the comments that I see on Twitter because these people don't have a clue how the PJ tour works, you know, and, um, you know, and you look at the money situation, um, people are wanting to play for the guaranteed money. I understand that Martin Slumbers from the RNA was talking about the meritocracy, the, the merits of having a merit-based game and if you play well and all this stuff. But, you know, it's just different. It's a different, it's a different way to play the game. And to me, it seems like maybe the tour has, I'm not saying they, they didn't give it any consideration. But this was coming on for the last couple of years, really. And, you know, the, the tour just uh, seems to me like they've, you know, made some pretty bold statements and banning players, and which is, which is having maybe a negative effect on the sponsors. I mean, I, I look at my own tournament here in Memphis, FedEx, St. Jude Invitational, and which I've played in 23 times, I think, in my career. And, uh, of course, my dad was a FedEx pilot, one of the first FedEx pilots. And St. Jude's a big part of my life in Memphis and the tour. Um, you know, Justin Johnson's not going to be here. I mean, all the guys. I mean, we read that today that, that they're now banned from the playoffs. We are hosting the first playoff event here in a couple of weeks. And I think that, that some of the some of the fans are not going to be able to see. These guys aren't going to be able to play. I mean, are the sponsors questioning you know, Jay's motivation might just ban these players without without consulting sponsors. And maybe he has. And maybe the sponsors are fine with it. I have no idea. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things about it. Um you know, I don't mean to take up all your time. Um you know, I think for every right. opinion that I have, there's probably one or two that would probably, you know, argue against what, you know, my thoughts are and, and they may even be right. I mean, but it it's it's taken up a lot of conversation. 
It really has. I mean, I talked about it with Keith Goose and I played the Pro-Am together last week with uh, ESPN Deportes, uh, John Sutcliffe, you know, the announcer for them. And we were talking about, you saw the different things, uh, you know, kind of going on and with the tour. And, you know, anyway, it, it's just really hard to, to kind of see um, some of the players. I'm not saying they're abandoning the tour. And I think some of the comments that I read on social media sites talk about, oh, they owe the tour this. The tour gave them everything. And even John alluded to that a little bit. I don't agree with that because the tour doesn't give you anything. You know, when I got on tour, I, I was a first-team All-American in 1991. It was me and Phil and David Duvall. And, you know, I won five college tournaments in second four or five times. They didn't give me anything. Now, now there's a PJ Tour University, PJ Tour U, where these top players they get they get a they get a Cornberry membership. Well, they didn't give me anything. And the tour, you know, you have to get onto this tour. You have to earn your way onto the tour. They don't just say, okay, well, you're going to play and you're going to play. We're not we're going to draft you. They don't. You have to earn everything. I mean, the tour provided an opportunity and a place to play that had been around. I mean, professional golf and the tour have been around since the fifties. 40s, 50s, you know, when the guys broke away, and then thankful to Jack and Arnold, and then th- you know, thanks go out to um, you know Gary McCord for you know going from basically 60 exempt players to to you know 125 exempt players. Or I'm you know I may have my numbers a little bit off, you know, but um, you know it, it was the players that did that. I mean, it wasn't the tour said, oh let's let's increase the field size. Then guess what now? They're trying to cut the field size. Well, they're going to. The exempt, the exempt is going to 70 for the playoffs. They're still going to keep it at 125. So I just kind of chuckle at some of the things. I don't mind the competition. I don't know if the tour just misjudged, um, the actual interest. Um, you know, it'd be like, like a, 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 a pilot at another airline and he decides, Oh, you know, I've been flying for this airline for a while. Oh, but there's an opportunity to visit FedEx because the FedEx captain pays $550 an hour versus $250 an hour in a triple seven. I mean, oh, I'm going to go do that. People are always chasing the money. And, you know, there are principles involved, I guess, and we can get into that debate too. But, um, I just think in the end, you know, the tour, you know, maybe just kind of misjudged the, the interest that the players had. Um, I thought some of the talking points some of the players had in the beginning were maybe off base. Oh, I want to play less, or I want to spend more time with my family. Of course, you want to spend more time with me. We all do. Um, you know, different things. I don't want to play as much. I just want to do kind of a few tournaments or whatever. And um, they never mentioned the money. Um, and it was totally about the money. I mean. Maybe new, maybe getting to play new golf courses, their smaller fields. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, I guess, why people want to do it. Um, but the longer that it goes on, the more players they continue to, um, you know, kind of get to join really is going to have an impact on the tour and the sponsors that, that, that continue to put up, um, the money for the players to play for, the fans, the, you know, the charities, the kids, the new kids that are trying to play the game. Uh, you know, but the PJ Tour is not the only organization that can do that. Um, 
You know, and I think that's maybe where the tour has kind of gone awry. They basically have determined that if you don't play the PJ tour, then, then, you know, you're not able to, to grow the game. And, um, this is the best place to play. And it is. I mean, look, it's the, it's the best place to play for me because I'm from the United States. Kids in Asia, the best place to play for them was in Asia. The European players, I mean, how many of those guys ever came over here 20, 30 years ago? Very few. And now, you know, the tour's gotten so big, the FedEx Cup, the money, the weather, I mean, the courses. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, why a lot of the players um, are playing in the United States. And now maybe people are just feeling like, hey, I didn't, I played well and I made $5 million. But the tour made $105 million, let's say, and I deserve part of that. You know, a lot of these players, I mean, it takes everybody. It takes employees and it takes workers and, and opportunity to, to grow the business. But um, it, it's really about the players. And, um, you know, these guys are just chasing. Maybe they just, they just feel like they weren't getting um, kind of what they deserved. I mean, I think Phil pretty much said that in his comments, which were pretty harsh. Um, but Live Golf is here to stay. I do, I do wonder what happens, and I'll, and I'll sign off, but I do wonder what happens if they are, if they're unable to, to get world ranking points. Cause I do understand that the comments that are, it's really more about exhibition, um, and what's the incentive to work and, and those types of things. And I think some of those questions were answered with the article I read today about the relegation. There are contractual um, you know, obligations for some of the players. But at some point, you know, if Phil, you know, like Ratif said, Phil's like 50 over for two events, he's made $200 million. I mean, <laughs> right. so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a crazy world we live in, but I think we're all, you know, kind of caught off guard a little bit when, when things start to change because we've been kind of conditioned that the PJ Tour is the one and only place to play. And that's just not true. I mean, I, I can tell you, cause I've, I've experienced it. I've, I've played in Asia. I've played in Europe. I've played in South America. I've played in Australia. So, um, a lot, and I'll just say this too. A lot of the tours are basically dead. I mean, I look at what's happened with Australia. I mean, not any golf. I mean, there used to be four or five great events that played there. South Africa had some great events. That's where I started my career. I turned pro in 1992 in January of 92 and I immediately went to South Africa play the Sunshine Tour, and they've been rescued by the European Tour. Um, but I just get back is that you know I'm I was conditioned to play in the states and at the highest level on the was the PGA Tour. Um, and so I don't know if I blame these guys or not. I, I mean, um, you know, the guys that are going have plenty of money, and it's just kind of the rich get richer. Um, and so. You know, if this is really about kind of Greg's act to grind, I, I don't, I don't really know, but, but he believes in his product and he's providing an opportunity, um, for players and, um, uh, to show off their talents and uh, share their experiences with the fans and, uh, and those types of things. So, you know, 20 years down the road, if it's still around, maybe we find out it's not such a bad thing, but, um, yeah. you know, probably in the minority in that right now, at least in the beginning. Sean, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with the things that you're doing and follow you on social media and online as well. Yeah, you can find me. Just type my name in. It'll pop up somewhere. <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, 
proudly, proudly a boring follow. I, I'm, I'm more of a follower. Um, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy, uh, reading other people's commentary. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, that's, you know, you can always find. John, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. I hope I get the privilege of catching up with you again real soon. You've been very important to the, to the history of this show and you've always been so generous over the years, like I say, going all the way back to 2014. So thank you so much for being here tonight and I'm already looking forward to next time, my friend. That's great, Chris. I can't believe it's been that long, but uh, yeah, it's always, always enjoyable to be part of your show. Glad you're doing so well with it. Take care, Sean. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. All right. Take care. See you. See you, Sean. That's a great Sean McKeel. You can follow him on Twitter at Sean McKeel PGA. A great guy. Very underrated for over the course of his career. And like I say, he's been on uh, since the very beginning of this show. So I'm very, very much appreciated his time and looking forward to catching up with him again soon.